As I have taken time to study this passage this week, I realize how spoiled I am to have so much available to me, so much provided for me, as well as so much prepared for me. I, and I think we, live in a time and culture that compared to past cultures and past experiences, um, the, the, the life that we live now is a life of relative ease, a life of much comfort, even for those who are poor among us. Let's just be honest about it. That's the kind of world in which we live. And this reality, honestly, as I study this passage, undermines my ability, and I think our ability to really grasp what is going on in this particular text of Scripture. Because here we have this passage that is all about water, living water. But I wonder if in our culture we would be better served if we understood what was going on here as living soda or living coffee. I mean, how many of you got up this morning and said, I've got to have my water, I've got to have my water. You went to Starbucks and you stood in line and you stood there grumpy and complaining because you didn't have your water yet. And there are some of you who are not coffee people, but you're soda people, you're Coke or Pepsi people. You've got to have that soda in the morning. To... See, although water is a part of the options that are available for us, I really think that we have lost our grasp of the impact and the importance of water. You know, on, on a hot day, you and I can walk into 7-Eleven or some kind of convenience store like that, and there is just a huge array of drinks for us to choose from. Some have extra caffeine, some have more, you know, at least claims of nutrients and all the things and minerals that your body needs to replenish itself in that particular moment in time. And as a culture, we've moved away from that one thing that Scripture talks about here, and that is water. Now, water is a very, very important aspect of life and living, isn't it? We need water. And so the idea in this passage is this idea of thirsting after water. And so we need to grasp that in Christ's day, it was vital for a culture and for the health of that culture to have Water. In fact, there is a geographic dynamic here that's really, really important. If you've ever visited Israel, you will understand that Israel experiences its water much like we in California experience our water. Here in California, the water really comes from the northeast, so to speak, of the state, where all the mountains are, Yosemite and all that kind of stuff, and it trickles down and then is funneled all the way down through the valley down to the south of the state, right? The same is true in Israel. There are five springs up in the northern part of Israel that feed the water into that land. A little side note, and a tour guide told us this, and it just all made sense. That's one of the reasons why when Syria invaded Israel many years ago, in recent history, they wanted the northern part of that country because you have the northern part of that country, you have the country because you have the water supply. You can't do anything there if you don't have that water. Water was critically important to those living in Palestine. It's critically important to us living here. So we may have a grasp of understanding it, but not in the sense of drinking it all the time. We're more concerned about watering our lawns and things like that, right? That's just the reality of it. So water in that culture was totally and absolutely necessary for sustaining life and for living. But here, as we come to this passage, we find this idea of living water. And uh, as we go through the, the, this passage, in particular verses 1 through 15, which is where we're going to focus our time today, um, there are a number of references to this water. Let's just kind of quickly review them. Um, we, we find this, 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 you know, this identification of Jesus showing up at a well. It's Jacob's well, we find out. That's in verse 6. Then um, he asks the Samaritan woman to give him a drink of water. A little later in verse 10, he talks about, you know, this water that I'm giving you is not H2O, it's living water. Um, then he talks about the fact that this water that I'm giving you will, will be such that you will never thirst again. And then he talks about again in verse 14, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Um, 
This passage is all about water, and it's all about living water, which means that there is an image being used here. There is an analogy that Jesus is using to communicate a spiritual truth. Now, what is living water? I would like to define it this way. Living water is the gospel and the ever-flowing life that comes through the gospel. So it is the gospel, but it is also the ever-flowing life that comes through the gospel. And we'll flesh that out a little bit as we go through this passage together. So it isn't simply the gospel of conversion, although that is beautiful and that is wonderful. It is also the, the gospel of satisfaction that comes as a result of conversion. And if you're a child of God, you and I have a privilege of having this this continual resource of satisfaction that we can drink from. That is a result of the cross. That is a result of our conversion. That is a result of us drinking this living water and it continually sustaining us. So this is an image, this is a picture, a a visual of life that comes when we believe by faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And it really is also a picture of this this uh, longing of our heart to be whole, to be satisfied, by, um, to be uh, accepted, and to belong. It's what people long for even though they don't necessarily know it. And People are living their lives all across this country, all around this particular area in the Bay Area, and there's a longing for satisfaction in life. And the real answer, the real solution, ultimately is Jesus Christ because he is the one who brings living water, okay? So this analogy really resonates with the importance of us needing to have our thirst quenched and satisfied in a person, and uh, that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. However, so many people are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. You've heard the song, looking for love in all the wrong places. People are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And uh, again, as I was thinking through this passage, it reminded me of, of a song I remember from uh, a number of years ago. Um, and it's a song by, uh, by Sting. You may know who Sting is. and You may know the song. And it's entitled, If I Ever Lose My Faith in You. Let me just read a few of the words from this, this song. You could say I lost my faith in science and progress. You could say I lost my belief in the Holy Church. You could say, I lost my sense of direction. You could say, all of this and worse. But if I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. Some would say, I was a lost man in a lost world. You could say, I lost my faith in the people on TV. You could say, I lost my belief in our politicians. They all seem like game show hosts to me. He may be onto something there. But he says, if I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. I never saw no miracle of science that didn't go from a blessing to a curse. Just think about that. A miracle of science. In other words, a demonstration that here is a miracle being celebrated, not turned into a curse. Interesting. I never saw no military solution that didn't always end up as something worse. But let me say this first. If I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. So Sting was interviewed, and one of the questions he was asked about this song is, what did you mean by you? If I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. And here's what he said. And it's kind of choppy, but I'll try and give you the sense. I, along with most other people, he says, have a great deal of hope and a feeling that things will and can get better. But so what do we place our faith in? What do we still have faith in? And I can't define that as easily as I can define what I don't believe anymore. And yet it still exists. So I haven't defined it. I've just said, if I ever lose my faith in you. And you could be my producer. It could be my faith in God. And I will put a little G there. It could be faith in myself or faith in a romantic love. It could be all of those things, but I don't define it. I think it's important not to define it because... Once you define something, it evaporates. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that we have a longing to be satisfied in something, but I just can't define it. Because everything that's out there that seems to be 
the answer, or it seems to be something trustworthy, seems to fall flat, and I've lost my faith in it. And friends, it's, 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 it's a message that people actually believe, I think, that are trying through life to find satisfaction in all the wrong places when their satisfaction can only be found by drinking the living water that Jesus gives. That is what quenches the thirst. That is what provides the, the necessary nutrients for their spiritual souls to be sustained for life. They, people know what's let them down, but in their old world, their own world, they're hoping and pursuing some form of, of satisfaction, whatever it is, wherever it is, and whoever that might be. So it's into that kind of context 2,000 years ago that Jesus comes to a well and he joins up with a woman of Samaria. And we find a very, very similar struggle that she is going through. Now I want to frame this text a little bit to make sure we understand where we're going. And I frame this text with three questions. I'll give them to you here. They're the main points just to kind of help you hang uh, our thoughts through here. It's not up on the screen, but I'll give it to you. The que three questions are this. Who needs this living water? Who needs this living water? Secondly, who gives this living water? Who gives it? And then finally, what are we to do with the living water? Now let me just pause here for a second. Many times when we come to this particular passage of Scripture, automatically we're looking at, ah, strategies for evangelism, right? What a great passage of Scripture this is to talk about evangelism, especially someone who is not a Jew or not religious. And there is a dynamic where there's, there's, a, there's a good resource here for that. Uh, I want to be careful that we don't just jump into the application of that. I want us to see what's in this text, and we will get to some of the implications of that a little later as it fits in. Um, but I think it's important here for us to see what is going on with Christ and with the Samaritan woman so that we can learn personally, we can apply what's going on personally here because we, we need this living water. This is not just about how do you do evangelism. There's something that God wants to teach us about our walk with him in this text. And so um, let's allow this text then to at least set the stage. So let's begin at verse 1, um, and uh, I want to read down through verse 6. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, you remember last week's message there, there was this conflict that took place, right? Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer here. Lord, again, this is a familiar passage of Scripture for many of us, and I ask, Lord, that we would not be distracted by what we already know, but, Lord, we would be humble to be teachable for what you want to teach us this morning, and, Lord, help us to come afresh to this great encounter that Jesus has with this woman at Samaria. And, uh, Lord, would we be teachable? Would we desire, Lord, to be conformed to the image of your Son? And allow me as your messenger simply to be the mouthpiece, Lord. Allow me to, to flesh out what you desire for, for these people, Lord, to hear this morning. And, uh, Lord, would you be glorified? We ask in your name. Amen. So Jesus, apparently desiring not to cause any further conflict with uh, John the Baptist and his disciples, as well as the fact that his... Uh, you know, his, the news of, of what he was done, doing and the following that he was having was reaching the Pharisees. He leaves Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand, leaving Jerusalem means you're going where? You're going into the countryside. You're going from the bustling city out into the middle of nowhere. And if there was a middle of nowhere, this is it. Okay? So this is, this is not some kind of a, um, you know, I'm moving from one city to another to do that. You know, he, he's, he's leaving the place where you would think that someone would want to stay, especially if things are going well. That's all part of his divine purpose. Because along this journey, there is a, there's a plan and there's an appointment. And we don't quite understand how all that works, except that Jesus is God and 
he is aware of what's going on and he is journeying then to this particular place. And a little, little just kind of a, of a note here, this you know, is identified in this passage as a little village called Sychar um, and this well is about a mile outside of that village. So there is some history behind what's going on here. Jacob is the one that built it. He is the one that ultimately provided the water that was there. You could almost see that there was a sign you know, there that says, you know, Jacob slept here or something like that. You know, kind of like, you know, George Washington slept here. I mean, this, is, this has historic value to that particular region, okay? So this is not, it's not a coincidence necessarily, but it certainly is a location that is significant historically. And really, it's an amazing screenshot. Remember, when, when John is writing this gospel, um, the whole idea of, of video and movies was not around. And we're, we might approach this, and, and in our mind's eye, we're kind of you know, having the, the camera on Jerusalem and kind of moving from Jerusalem. We're kind of way up in the air, and we see a map, and we're, we're journeying along this map, and we go out there to Samaria and then to, to, to Shechem, which is nearby, and then Sychar, and, and then from there, this little path that comes out of the village a mile out to this well. And so you go from just you know, vast Jerusalem to this little dot that is this well. Jesus was heading for a dot on a map. I mean, it's really, it's really a beautiful way that he just kind of transitions from Jerusalem to this location. And you can just imagine, if, if we could have a video there, how, how, how awesome it would be just to kind of get that. And just a, a few strokes of the pen, boom, he lays us there next to this, this particular uh, well to, to, to help us see what is going to be taking place here. Now, some argue that, um, that Jews... You know, never walk this path. They always went, go outside of Samaria. Remember, in that culture, there were different kinds of Jews, right? There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees. But that wasn't the representation of all the Jews. Those were the elite, the, you might want to say the ultra-religious ones, right? And certainly, people like the Pharisees, they were like, oh, I'm not going to go anywhere near Samaria. And so they literally would go across Jordan, they'd walk down the other side, and they'd stay away from Samaria. But this was a normal route. This is where people would walk, okay? So it, it isn't necessarily that unusual that Jesus is going there. You can read into the text a little bit that Jesus had to go this path, all right? And you can make a little bit too much emphasis there. This was a normal journey for most people to take, okay? But it was part of God's plan and purpose here. And notice it was the sixth hour when we find Jesus at this well. The sixth hour is about noon. Now, that's pretty significant just to kind of shape the context of what's going on here, all right? If it's noon, would you say it's kind of the, the cool part of the day or the warm part of the day? It's definitely the warm part of the day. So Jesus has been walking, he's tired, he's thirsty, he comes to this well, and here we have this encounter with this woman. And so as the story unfolds, um, we know that Jesus was talking ultimately not about H2O, but he was talking about life that comes through the gospel. Notice verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So now let's jump to the first question. The first question, ah, I should have had that up there. The first question is this, um, who needs living water? I don't think it's any surprise that chapter 4, which of course John didn't have chapters when he wrote his gospel, but in cha chapter 4 comes very soon after John, uh, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Because what you have with Nicodemus, as you see up there, is you have this picture of, of religious moralism. You have this picture of someone who is um, you know, morally uh, upright, a person who, who represented um, society and the importance of, of being uh, intellectual and educated and accepted and respected and, and doing things well and doing things right. Um, that's certainly one side of the spectrum. Now, just think about this. You probably know people who fit into that category. In fact, there's, there's always the caution that could be true of, of some of us here. We've grown up in a Christian home. We've attended church all our lives, maybe went to a Christian school. We've been in the circles. And so we, we know what it is to, to do what is called for in the context of a religious Christian culture. And so as long as we're 
we're doing the right things, it seems like everything's okay, but we can be dead lost, okay? And so there's, there's a need for, uh, for that person and for Nicodemus to be born again. That's what that whole passage was about. So the truth is they need People like Nicodemus and people that he represents there, they need satisfaction. They need living water. But not only do they need it, um, also the Samaritan woman um, is going to need it. She represents, I would say, I'm just summarizing here, the, the pagan immoral person um, in particular, someone who has taken a religious system and has been a part of or is, or is worshiping a distortion of what it initially was. And you could argue that well, so were the Pharisees, right? But this one was a distortion that was despised by the Jews. And uh, there's some reason for that. But you also look at her and you see, you know what, she has, she has definitely committed herself to relationships and finding her satisfaction in those relationships. Whether it's be a husband, and, and this would be true of anyone that would fall in this category, it could be trying to pursue satisfaction in a relationship with a husband, with a wife, a friend, a companion, a soulmate, whatever it might be. And friends, the world is full of people like this. They're just trying to pursue one relationship after another. It's, it's a social, a community kind of a thing where I just, I have to fit in, I have to belong, and I want to be a part of this, and I want to be a part of that, and I don't want to be left out. I'm, I'm only finding my satisfaction if I'm accepted, if, I am, if I'm a part of something, and if, if people like me. And those kinds of people desperately need to drink from the fountain of living water. Now, specifically, what does this passage tell us about the Samaritan woman? There's three things, which I'm sure you already know. First of all, she was a Samaritan, just in case you were wondering, okay? Now, why is that significant? Well, historically, um, when uh, the Assyrians came in, 722 B.C., they took over Israel. They took that northern tribe away. And what happened there is that they didn't just take them into captivity. Their philosophy, political philosophy, um, was not necessarily to just to displace people, but was also to have them um, intermingle with other people groups. And the purpose of that was so that they would not, I, they would not keep their national identity. Secondly, they would not keep their, their religious or spiritual identity. And so as a result of that, you had this group of people some of them were taken away, some of them were replanted back, some of them were, were, were left there as a result of the invasion, but other people were brought from other places to live there too. And so the, I want to say the, the, the Jewish or the, you know, the, the religious system that, that may have been pure under Judaism was now distorted and tainted and, and um, undermined by other pagan ideas. And as a result of that, yes, they, they certainly embraced um, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, but they rejected everything else. And the result of that was um, basically that the, the, the Jews living in Jerusalem looked at the Samaritans and said, listen, you have, your ancestors have abandoned the faith, and you have intermarried, you have intermingled, and therefore we can have nothing to do with you because you are defiled. So there was really, it wasn't just, oh, we don't like you, but it was, you have you have compromised, you've defiled the true faith. So there was these deep-rooted kind of attitudes that they had um, toward one another, um, and uh, in particular, the Jews had toward them. So they were definitely looked down upon, and uh, the Jews had strict rules relating to the Samaritans, and uh, they basically uh, were bound to, to follow those rules. But not only was she a Samaritan, but she was also a woman. Now, again... This is one that may be hard for us to understand because we don't live in a culture, even though other people may say we do, we don't live in a culture that looks down on women like this culture did look down on women. All right? Now, the part of the, the, the application here is this, that in that culture, when you're outside of your home, you didn't just casually go up and talk to any lady that was out there. Okay? Unless it was your family, you know, grandma you know, your sister, aunt, or something like that, you didn't interact with women. You didn't just walk up and do that. So, so the fact that she was a woman, and in that culture, again, kind of lower on the totem pole, so to speak, was, was just something that was not accepted in that culture. I'm not necessarily saying right or wrong. I'm just saying in the culture, that's how they viewed it, 
okay? You just didn't do that. You know, and we think nothing of that kind of stuff. Now, I mean, just, just think practically speaking. Today's culture here in, here in America um, isn't quite as concerned about a man who may be married sitting down at Starbucks and having coffee with another woman who is, being, who is married. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of a, a good public place to meet and casual and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, wait a second. I mean, from my, from my culture, for me, it's like, uh-uh, I'm, I, that, I'm not doing that. You understand? There's, there's a cultural thing in there. The younger generation thinks nothing of it. Okay? So there are, there are cultural things that, that are just part of the culture, and that's what's going on here. The fact that she was a Samaritan, the fact that she was also a woman is significant. Now, you want proof for that, jump down to verse, verse 27, because um, the disciples went away, and when they came back, notice what happens there. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? I mean, they may have whispered that to each other, like, you know, what? Why is, why is he? I mean, the fact that it's even there, that this is being said, tells us that there was something culturally, might want to say disturbing, that the disciples were picking up on here and, and wondering about. And John is paying attention to it. So the fact that she's a Samaritan, the fact that she's a woman, and also the fact of, of her lifestyle. She was definitely um, immoral. You see, well, how do you get that? Look down at verse 16. Jesus identifies it very, very clearly. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and one, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, in your handout, there's some red letters that should not be there if you notice that or not. Because I put those in there accidentally. So that's not the ESV at fault. That's the, the RSV at fault, which would be my version, all right? Um, I just noticed that as I was going through. So if you're confused about that, the woman's words are not supposed to be Jesus' words, okay? Now, what we have here are two extremes. You have, on one side, you have this, this self-righteous religious person, which would be Nicodemus, who thinks he has it all together. And that's typically what you have with a religious leadership, right? Self-righteous, they think they've all figured it out. We're all children of Abraham, all right? We've, we've got our entrance in because Abraham's our father. And then you have this self-loathing, empty person who is trying to keep it together. How is she trying to keep it together? I think the evidence here says relationship after relationship after relationship. And add to that, it's not that you're, you've been married five times, now you're living with a boyfriend, which indicates that there's something more going on here than simply she had a husband and he died, she has a husband and she dies, she had a husband and he died. You see what I'm saying? There's something more going on here that there's this, this, this desire, this pursuit for satisfaction in these relationships that has fallen flat. Both of these two extremes and everything in the middle are in need of satisfaction that only comes through living water. And friends, it's so important for us to recognize and to acknowledge now, who gives us living water? And we know the answer, because we know the story. But before we, we jump in and give the answer, I want you to put yourself in the role of this Samaritan woman. And let's pick up some of the things from this passage and just think through what's going on on that day and maybe even bring it up to modern times a little bit. But can you imagine what this day was like for this woman? She's going to the well at an unusual time. You say, well, Why? When would people typically go to a well like this, especially if it's an, you know, a mile outside of the village? Can you, when would you want to do it? In the cool of the morning. Now, it could be jumping to conclusions, but is it possible that maybe this is the time when she would typically come because she was considered an outcast? It could be. We're not told that. It could be. It's unusual. Or maybe, you know, she was cooking a meal that night and she needed more water. Who knows what? But just some of the evidence here, it does seem to indicate that there's something about her that, that puts her in this kind of outcast mode. She is seemingly by herself, which again is unusual because women typically would not go off wandering like this by themselves. They would go in groups together. You just check out history and how 
typically things would happen in communities. The women would do these things together. They wouldn't just go off on by themselves, okay, just for safety purposes. All right? And she was um, certainly not expecting to arrive at Jacob's well and to be asked for some water from a Jew who could change her life forever. She didn't know what she was walking into. She just thought she was going to a, to a, to a, a well, and she was going to go, and she was going to draw out water, and she was going to take it back to her home. That's what she thought was going to happen. But she was about to meet Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now notice verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And he asked her then for a drink. You guys may remember the song by Joan Osborne entitled, What If God Were One of Us? You guys remember that at all? Now, I just want you to think about a few of the words here. She says, some questions she asks in this song. It's not, it's not written by a Christian for Christians. This is secular stuff, okay? Wrestling with spiritual realities. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And then she goes on, the chorus is like, yeah, yeah, God is great, yeah, yeah, God is good. What if God were one of us, she asks. Just a slob like one of us. What she's trying to identify, or the writer of the song is trying to identify, just a, a, a human being struggling in life just like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Now, I, just, I want you to think about those questions and, what, and what's crying out in that particular song and just think about this particular passage that we're in because if we brought this story into, you might want to say, modern times, where would this encounter likely be taking place? San Francisco International Airport. The bus stop. On a bench at the BART station. You're waiting, you've been at work, you're tired, and this person comes, sits down next to you, it's a guy, and he starts talking with you, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine, that's good. And Hey, you know, um, he starts talking about how, how you're empty in your life and how you need to trust him and believe in him for eternal life. And of course, you're thinking to yourself, all right, I want to be kind to this person. I don't want to blow them off. Um, and so you just, you know, you're, you're, you're kind, and you respond kindly, but then you start to ignore because he continues on talking about how you need to believe in him because he is the Messiah. And so you, you choose to maybe go and sit somewhere else and if that doesn't work, you call 1-800-STRAIGHT-JACKET, and hopefully some help will be there, all right? I mean, listen, what I'm trying to get in your head here, because we know this story so well, is that if we were this woman sitting at the BART station or sitting at, at this well or going to this place, we would think this person in front of us is a crazy person to be claiming what he's claiming, Okay? Although we know the answer, who it is, get into the story and understand what she is kind of thinking and what's going on with her. She goes up to the well, and this person who's sitting there, clearly she identifies him as a Jew, and it's a man, and she's a woman, and he says, give me something to drink. Well, um, listen to how the story unfolds. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. So she knows the issue at hand. She knows the conflict. And, and John gives us this parenthetical statement to kind of summarize it. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The, the specific idea of this word dealings is not just kind of like interaction. It has to do with Jews specifically do not use the utensils and the dishes and the equipment of the Samaritans. So for Jesus to actually take a drink would mean that he would be defiling himself with that equipment, okay? That's the idea here. So it's not about the fact that he's, that he's asking, it's more about the specifics of the utensils that would make him, at least in their thinking, ceremonially unclean. So what Jesus was asking was very much out of the ordinary, and it was strange. Notice again verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew... Really pretty important statement there, isn't it? If you knew. I, I, I would add this. If you only knew. <laughs> if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, there it is. The living water 
the gift of God, and Jesus is the gift giver. But if only she knew what it is that Jesus was actually saying. But she doesn't. She doesn't comprehend it. She hasn't been brought to that place yet. Now, that's not unlike what happened with Nicodemus, right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what is Nicodemus thinking? He's like, how do I get back in, how, how do I get back into my mother's womb and get born again? I mean, he is completely and totally on this, this temporal mindset. And she's still thinking H2O. And Jesus is not speaking H2O now. He's speaking about spiritual realities. But she's still thinking H2O. So just make sure we understand that. Now, it's important also for us to understand this expression, living water, and how it was used in that particular context, in that particular culture. The word and the idea of living water literally means a spring or free-flowing water. So I think that she might be thinking this as she is speaking to Jesus. Are you claiming to know of some free-flowing water around here that I'm not aware of? Now, if this is a woman who every day is going to the well to collect water, do you think if she knew of other places where there was free-flowing water that would be satisfying, do you think that, would get, that word would get around? Yes. And I'm sure she's probably thinking, I have been coming to this well for years, and if there's one thing I know, it's that there's no living water in these parts at all. The only water that might be flowing is this well, and it's way down there. So, I think what we have here then in her responses is responses that have a little sarcasm in what she's saying. Now follow. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. All right, so how are you going to give me this living water? You have nothing to draw the water with, and this well is deep. You can't just reach down with your hand. It's way, way down there. Where do you get that living water? In other words, do you know this area's water supply better than I do? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, are you smarter than him? Are you more knowledgeable than him? Well, there is an answer to that question, right? She doesn't realize the answer to that question. The answer is, by the way, yes. But she doesn't know who she's speaking to at this point, right? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons, and his livestock. So in other words, are you claiming to be smarter or no more than our ancestor Jacob? He dug the well. He provided it for us. And then we have Jesus' response, and these are powerful words. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So now he's connecting this distinction between H2O and what he's talking about. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So if she only knew who it was that was speaking to her, and who is it that's speaking to her? I, I want to put it this way. First of all, it's Jesus the Word. Now this is such a beautiful thing, and you have in these passages just a, a number of statements here that just are indications that Jesus is testifying about himself, and John is using this as evidence to prove his point. You know, who is it that's saying this to you? The water that I will give you, he talks about. I who speak to you am he, ultimately in verse 26. He identifies himself as this Messiah. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 and 2. Here's the Word. The creator, the one who provides life, the one who sustains life, the one who provides living water. And then later, as I mentioned, um, in this encounter that she has with Jesus, um, he mentions these five husbands and her living boyfriend. And she admits, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, I, I can't think of a much clearer self-identification at being the Messiah than what is said here, right? I who speak to you am he. 
in reference to what she says. Now, he is the Word. But what's also mentioned in this passage is that he is the Word made flesh. Now, just comprehend this. Here's the creator of the universe. The one who sustains everything. The one who is aware of and controls it all. We find in this passage, just like in John 1.14, where it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of, uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is Jesus, tired and weary and thirsting. He's the Word, but he's the Word made flesh. I mean, if there was ever a time in this gospel where you can say, here is Jesus in the rawness of his incarnation, this would be it. A long journey, completely, we use the word in, in, in the English language, knackered. It means just totally, completely wiped out. That's the idea of what's going on here. It's not like, okay, I've got to get a drink. No, it's like, oh, oh, oh. I am just totally, totally wiped out. I am beat. Listen, just pause here for a second. Jesus understands and knows what it's like to be human. And he understands the struggles and the burdens that you face in your humanity. The book of Hebrews tells us that. that he was touched in all parts, just like, just like we are, in his humanity. And so it's just this beautiful picture of here is this, this word, this creator, this, this sovereign God who is also in the form of humanity, struggling and humble, and yet has compassion. So the giver of this living water is none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the word, and the word made flesh. Now we get to the third thing. The third thing is, third question would be, what do we do with the living water? And this is where we begin to now put the pieces together and, and seek to be practical. And the first thing we, we need to understand is this. We need to drink it, right? If we have never drunk this living water, this, this whole story is telling us, it's screaming at us, just like this woman who's coming to Jesus at the well we have the great opportunity, we have the great possibility and the great privilege to drink from this living water. And the result of that would be that we would have life. But friends, there's a real danger for us. There's a danger for us, especially if we have grown up in our Christian culture, in our Christian homes. We're, we're, we are very, very comfortable in, in church because that's the culture in which we've grown up in. We may have gone to a Christian school, and so all of our circles have been in the context of Christianity, and so we've learned the habits and the behaviors and the thinkings, and, and this living water is there for us. It's been offered to us. It's been handed to us, and we play the part of drinking rather than truly satisfying ourselves in the gospel. And we're satisfied with our morality. We're satisfied with the fact that we're in the club and we're part of the package when the reality is we have never drunk from the well that is the life that Jesus gives us, that is the gospel. We've always come up short. We may have had emotional experiences. We may have done things at camp that, that were just kind of things that happened at that point in time, but we've actually never embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's possible, friends. And in fact, I think it's far more common than we think. Now, we must ask ourselves some questions, just, just if that happens to be our context. Have I taken a drink of the satisfying living water? Have I humbled myself before God and confessed my sin before Him that what He calls sin Deserving wrath and judgment is truly sin. Have I grabbed a hold of eternal life and pleaded for God's forgiveness through the cross? Have I tasted the heavenly, satisfying, refreshing water of that gospel? Well, that's one side of the spectrum here. On the other hand, you may be here today and you may be thinking to yourself that I am totally and completely unworthy of his kindness because your life is has been such a mess. And it's such a mess because of relationship 
after relationship that has gone sour or activities and behavior that our culture and maybe even say even Christianity looks at and says, ah, that's sin. And we also kind of have to step away from you a little bit. And you're ashamed. But friends, understand this. That this living water is just as much for you. You may feel unworthy, and guess what? You are. That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. Knowing that you are unworthy, that you don't deserve anything, but he gives it to you anyway. See, the problem is, those who are the more religious, they think they have it together. They think they're worthy. They think they've done all the things, checked off all the boxes, and see, God, look at me. And then you have this, this other person on the other spectrum that's saying there's no way that God could love me. And God's living water is for both of those groups of people. And I would just plead with you. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus says here, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is calling for you to do, if you feel unworthy, is to acknowledge it and to embrace his forgiveness and to revel in the new life that he has given for you. And then to fight the tendency to go back and to re might, uh, dig up all that stuff and relive it again when it's already been paid for, which is very, very common for someone who's lived that kind of life. So the first thing we need to do is to drink this water, to quench the thirst. And of course, that is the, that is the drink of conversion. The second thing is to delight in it. You say, where, where do you get that, Pastor Rod? Well, remember, I want to remind you that this loving water is not limited to conversion. It is a fountain within all of us who have believed in him for salvation. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, talking about the water, the literal water that's in the, in the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. That The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This constant flow this constant reality, this constant satisfaction. And friends, it's not just, oh, I got my ticket into heaven with drinking this water. It's I have this never-ending supply of living water as I'm living my life for the glory of God now. It's there. And I can delight in it. I can satisfy myself in it daily. And when I'm going through trials and difficulties, I am delighting in this resource. And ultimately, friends, this resource is the Holy Spirit who is living in you, who is at work in you. You know, he, 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 never, goes, he never goes on vacation. He is always there as a resource and as a strength and as a support and as a sustenance for you. It's part of the package. It's part of this living water that you and I have been given. And so we can quench our thirst every day. Every day. And we'll see as we continue on next week in this passage that it, it's from this living water that there are streams that go out that, that are natural streams. And one of those streams is, is that a person who has tasted the living water will worship God in a way that is truly a reflection of this living water. They will witness in such a way that is a reflection of this living water. The passage just unfolds that and ultimately ends up with you will exercise faith in such a way that is the result of living water. Okay? So it's something that we can delight in and we should delight in. And I think as believers, we, we do delight in. Now here's the last part, and here's where we might want to say we get to the evangelistic practical side. All right, not only do we drink it, delight in it, we also deliver it. You got water, and people are thirsty. Now, I know, you know, people say, don't, you know, don't share the bottle, right? You know, what do they call it when you don't actually put the bottle in your mouth? What do you call that? Water falling? It's a, you know, new generation term, right? In my generation, we didn't care. We just sucked on the bottle, right? Right? Um, when, when, uh, when my wife and I first moved into our home in, in Hayward, we live up by Cal State, um, East Bay, 
And so when we took our kids to school, we would come down the hill, and we'd get on the freeway at Winton, and our children um, go to school at, uh, at Redwood Christian. So that's in San Lorenzo. So we'd get on at Winton, and we'd get on the freeway, we'd get off at Hesperian. And almost every day when we got on the freeway, we would laugh because it, it's almost like this, this Alhambra work truck would, would show up right as soon as we got on the freeway. And so we would, we would kind of gauge whether or not we were on time, whether we were doing well, because this Alhambra you know, water truck would, would be there. You can't miss them. You know what I'm talking about, right? They got all the sparkly things on the back. And, you know, so either it was like in front of us, and if it was way in front of us, we're like, oh, we're running late. You know? And if it was behind us, it's like, oh, good, we're, we're on time. Until I finally came to the understanding that there wasn't just one Alhambra truck. They were out distributing, delivering their water. Now, friends, understand this. God has blessed us with living water. Part of our responsibility is also to deliver it. You know, you guys are at the, at the Jacob's well throughout the week. It could be the water fountain at work. It could be your cubicle. It could be, you know the BART station, it could be with your friends at school, it could be a number of different things. You're interacting with other people and people's lives are going on and God has a divine appointment for you and it's an opportunity for you to open your mouth and to share the good news of the gospel, to, to present this living water. And so what we're going to look at right here are six principles, I think it is, that I have just flowing out of this text. I'll be real brief because um, we've said a lot here and, and these six things will flow naturally out of this. I know you only have, what, four in your handout? So just bear with me because I added two more and everything's messed up for you now, okay, as far as filling in the blanks. So hopefully you're going to be okay with that, all right? But look at it this way. I'm giving you two extra. I'm not taking one away, okay? So, and I'm not charging you for it either, all right? So that's a good thing, all right? So, so I think some helpful principles that do flow out of this passage. The question we need to ask is this. Am I willing to do these things? Number one, am I willing to care for the lost? Now the question here is this. We may be more comfortable caring for the Nicodemuses of this world as opposed to the Samaritan womans of this world. And what I want to encourage us with is don't make a distinction. Do you care for the lost? You know, I, I'll, I'll go and talk to this kind of person, but not this kind of person. We, we naturally do that. And I just want to enlarge our vision here. Now, whatever that might be. Um, the moral, the immoral, the religious, the pagan, the accepted, the outcast, the educated, the simple, the Republicans, the Democrats. We don't worry about libertarians. But anyway, you know, it just, you get the point. There are little things that kind of get in there for us, and we're like, well, I'll, I'll go to them, but I won't go to them, right? Jesus cares for both. For all is the point here. Am I willing to care for the lost in their entirety? Secondly, am I willing to conquer my flesh? I mean, you know, think about it. Jesus didn't have to engage this woman in conversation. All he needed to do was simply to get his drink of water and there, all right, I got my water. But he doesn't. He, he goes further than that. He, you know, most of the time we're like, you know, I could share, I could talk, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. Well, that fearfulness is what? It's your flesh. I'm tired, okay? It's your flesh. Tired is not an excuse Tired is the reality of what you feel. What are, what are you going to do with that? He still barreled through being tired to do what, what he knew he needed to do. And many times we need to kind of take on that same kind of, I guess, tenacity, that, that boldness. So he said, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, I'm proud, I'm bitter, I'm resentful. There's all sorts of things there. But the thing is, yeah, but this person doesn't have satisfaction. Am I going to allow my flesh to kick in and to stop me from sharing this, this water? Here's the third one. I think number two then was like a 1A for you, okay? Um, here's the third one. Cro are you willing to cross the boundaries? Well, what, what were the boundaries for Jesus? Well, he was in Samaria talking to a woman. A uh, little caution here. This is not, you know, Pandora's box to go out and to break every kind of cultural standard or whatever. You still need to be prudent and think through what you're doing. But the kind of boundaries I'm talking about would be racial boundaries, would be um, uh, 
um, things like political boundaries, educational boundaries. I mean, I could, you know, I could never talk to this person. They have a PhD. They would run circles around me. Listen, the gospel is the same for people who are educated and who are not. And you might feel totally inadequate to talk to a person who has this great education, but listen, the go- it's not you. It's the gospel, right? So we, we have all these things that for us are barriers and obstacles in the way, and are we willing to, to press on and to cross them and to, to get through them, all right? Next one would be, am I willing then to connect with people? I think sometimes with good intentions, we make, you know, we make some contact, we say some things, but we kind of kind of fall short. We don't really connect with the person. And this is, this is a flaw sometimes in evangelism, is that we're, we're so focused on sharing the gospel, we forget we're talking to a person. And probably a person who has, is married, who has children, who, who has hobbies and has life, and, and we're not concerned about them, we're just concerned about making sure we get the words of the gospel out. And the point is, connect with them on, on a level of, you know, I'm interested in you. And I think in the story here, Jesus does that with this woman. He connects with some struggles that she was going through. Now understand, this is Jesus doing evangelism. He had some, some things going for him that we don't, okay? So we can't, we can't be exactly like him, but there are principles here that are helpful for us as we think through our opportunities. The next one, communicate the good news. And so often we fall, we fall short, um, or we, you know, we, we, we flake out with this, and we, we give kind of a soft gospel, and we we may have done the hard work of building this relationship, but when it comes time to share the gospel, we're just, we're not complete, all right? Because, again, fears kick in or whatever it might be. So just share the, the, the whole gospel. Be bold. Speak the truth. Be compassionate about sin and God's wrath, okay? It is a truth in Scripture. That doesn't mean that you need to scream it. Every time you see wrath, doesn't mean you have to scream it and have a hammer banging on something when you're near, you know, all right? No, it's, it's part of the reality of man's condition. But the great news is that you don't have to be under his wrath, that Jesus takes the wrath on himself. And if we're soft about wrath, then, then ultimately people's view of Christ then is soft because he's really not taking that much on him. Right? But we can speak about it in, in compassionate ways. Um, identify with the person's struggles. Set Jesus then as the answer to their emptiness. And the last one is this. Be conscious of God's providence. You know, why is that person sitting next to you? Why is that person, um, you know, reading what they're reading? You know, why is it, you know, on this particular lunch, when you sit down in the workspace at work, that this person happens to be there again? There's, there's a providence that is going on that you may not know, you may not, you know, you don't have the exact answers, but you're saying, okay, God, I'm your servant, I'm here to do whatever you want, and just bridge a conversation, begin to talk. Now, Ultimately, as we come through this passage, we want to see Christ, okay? And we want to see that this, this living water flows out of what he has accomplished on the cross for us. And his living water goes out, in particular in this story, to someone who is immoral, someone who is an outcast, someone who is looked down upon, someone who is considered to be defiled. And his gospel and his living water satisfies that person, just as much as it satisfies the religious person, all of them are in the state of lostness unless they have a pure relationship with Jesus Christ. So help us to learn and see our place in that. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will, know, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You might say, aha, see, that's the point where things started to turn. no. She's still thinking H2O. She'd be happy to not have to walk to the well anymore. She still doesn't get it. As she goes on in the story, she does finally get it. We'll get to that next week. But friends, this is living water. It's life for us. Drink it, delight in it, deliver it for his glory. Lord, help us today. As we ponder, Lord, what you have done for us, as we've looked at this passage, Lord, would you allow us to place ourselves into the context between these two, might want to say, extremes of uh, religious morality and um, pagan immorality. And to see ourselves and to see, Lord, what you have done 
if we are your children, Lord, or maybe if we're not your children, to see where we would fit and to realize that, that the only answer for our, this, our hunger for satisfaction is found in you, and it's found, according to this text, by drinking this living water that, having drunk it, will be there like a fountain overflowing and, and Lord, just providing continual sustenance for our lives, Lord. But that's all because of you. It's all because of your Holy Spirit living in us. And Lord, I just ask that you would strengthen us now to seriously consider our relationship with you. And Lord, maybe we have this fountain because we are your children, but maybe we've been reluctant to actually drink at it. We're confused. We're not sure exactly what we need to do. And Lord, help us to confess that to you. And Lord, to begin afresh, to, to rejoice in the salvation that we have in you and seek to understand it and to, to pursue this, this life and this life that John calls abundant life. Lord, and that is what you came to call us to. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us on the cross. In your name, amen.